And so we thank you, Lord, that even if we are faithless, you remain faithful. And you give yourself faith to us. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would help us now to preach. We pray that, Lord, when we leave this place, we'd have at least like faith, like a grain of mustard seed. And you said if we had faith like that, we could say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. And you were standing in front of Mount Zion. And the sea is the nations of the world. And so mountain, be thrown into the sea. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. <laughs> this could be the year that you meet your wife. This could be the year that, that your business uh, takes off. Then again, this could be the year that she leaves. And the stock market might crash. And you might sink under the waves. This could be the year you die. Well, think about that as you're trying to fall to sleep tonight. You know, the harder you try to sleep, the less you do sleep until at last it feels like you're drowning and the very last thing that you can do is be still. Rest. So you thrash around like a drowning person looking for anything solid, anything permanent to hold on to. How do you rest in the midst of a sea of chaos? Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. And so you try to calm your heart and you look to God. And then you really freak out because <laughs> you realize that it's him that led you to this very place. The guy on TV said, follow Jesus and, and stuff will you know, work out for you. So what happened? You followed, now you're drowning and he's just watching. And then you hear, be still. About 3,500 years ago, an entire nation of slaves heard just that. Pharaoh had just released the Israelites from slavery. They had camped twice on their journey to the promised land. Uh, but the scripture makes it clear they were taking a rather erratic route, an abnormal route, uh, a route that led to the banks of the Red Sea. And it's very clear that that was no accident. But in fact, Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was leading them, leading them to this point where they would be completely hemmed in. To the north lie Egyptian fortifications. To the south, the great expanse of desert. To the west, Pharaoh, who had changed his mind because the Lord had hardened his heart. Pharaoh was now bearing down upon Israel with all the armies of Egypt and 600 choice chariots, the green beret of Egypt. North, south, west, and then east, directly in front of them, the sea. And you know, for the Israelites in Scripture, the sea is chaos and despair. If the United States decided to declare war on Rhode Island, the situation in Rhode Island would be very similar to that of Israel that day. Exodus 14. It's evening. It's time to rest. And Israel has been commanded to camp Next to the sea, west of the sea, Exodus 14.10, when Pharaoh drew near, 
The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they were in great fear. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone, leave us alone, and just let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die, to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. An entire nation cries out to Moses, what the heck are you doing? What are you, some kind of sick, evil mortician, sociopath that ran out of graves in Egypt so you brought us out here in the desert to die? Slavery's better than this. Do you lead us here to drown? What's the strategy? What's the plan? What's the game plan? Moses. Can you imagine how Moses felt? I mean, it's one thing to screw up your own life, but to drown an entire nation? That's a drag. He's got to be wondering, did I miss something? Am, am I going insane? Who is this Yahweh and what's he doing? Because, see, God could have told Moses just what he was doing, but he didn't. Moses and the Israelites, they had no objective explanation. They could see God or the angel of God right there in the pillar of fire, and he just watched at arm's length as they prepared to drown. In the words of Soren Kierkegaard, they had no objective truth or explanation, only subjective encounter out on that sea of dark and chaotic despair. Just a divine trust me, just a word. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you, and you have only to be still. Be still. Yeah, right, be still. When they received that word, the ruach, the breath of God that hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis chapter one, it had not yet begun to blow upon the Red Sea. And they had not heard the name Jesus, the one who sleeps on the sea, who walks on the sea, who calms the sea. And sure, Easter was on its way, but all they knew was Friday and a not very good Friday. They had followed him to this. You ever been there? With Moses and the Israelites on the western bank of the sea? With Mary and John on Mount Calvary? You followed him. And for what? This? I followed him to seminary, at least as best I knew how. In order to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, they required that I take the MMPI, the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory. I told you about it a couple years ago. I took it in our apartment late one night, exhausted and in a really foul mood, and it, and it asked questions like this. Do you like fire? Do you believe that there are people that are out to get you? 
Do you believe that there's a devil that hates your soul? Yep, yep, yep. I remember I just checking all of them and thinking to myself, gosh, if anyone took one of these tests seriously, they'd think I was crazy. After Christmas break, I went to see the young psych grad in charge of the test who would be sending the results to the presbytery. She interviewed me for a few minutes and then she stopped, leaned forward and asked me this question. Peter, are you an alcoholic? And I said, um, don't think so. She said, Peter, do you beat your wife? And I said, no, I don't beat my wife. And she said, well, Peter, there must be some way that you handle your anger. Do you like violent sports? And being an idiot and uh, loving backpacking and football, I leaned forward, I smiled, and I said, oh, yeah. In fact, the more cuts and bruises I get, the better I feel. And at that, she stopped me. And she said, Peter, listen closely. You have a serious personality disorder. I don't know what it is, but you gotta trust me, you have it. Unless you submit to extensive psychotherapy, extensive psychotherapy, your marriage will end within a year and your ministry will be an utter disaster. And when I expressed some alarm over that, she said, see, you're paranoid. And then when I tried to calm myself down, she said, see, you're passive aggressive. She said I couldn't trust myself or even the opinions of those close to me because my very perceptions of reality were fundamentally flawed. I was trapped. I mean, I really was trapped with nowhere to look but up. And so I looked to God and I cried out, have you led me to seminary just to watch me drown? I mean, what's the plan? I don't understand the point. What's the purpose? It looks to me like you're just trying to kill me. And I felt like I heard an answer. And the answer was this. Yes. Peter, I'm trying to kill you. That prideful, old, independent you. Did you think that I was kidding when I said in order to fall, you must pick up a cross? I'm taking away all your supports, all your resources, so you'll cling only to me like a drowning man clings to a rock in a torrent. So fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. I will fight for you, and you have only to be still. Well, a friend of mine paid for me to be retested by a more reputable psychiatrist, and it turns out that the first test was ruled a misdiagnosis. It was a misdiagnosis, and yet I'm convinced it was the perfect prescription. Because you see, I tend to believe that I'm my own savior. And that, my friends, is as stressful as hell. I tend to believe that I'm my own savior, and God was intent on showing me that only he is sufficient for that task. That his grace is sufficient for me, and his power is made perfect in weakness. You see, it's in the drowning that we are saved. Well, when you get through something like that, you tend to think, great, I'm done with that lesson. But you know what? That's the only lesson. And that wasn't the end. It was, the only, it was only the start. I think it was my baptism, if you will. For the last four years, I've felt pinned against the banks of the sea. I really have. But now it's not just me. 
It's also some people following me. Or at least the word in me. Three years ago, I took a stand, and many of you took the stand with me. We took a stand that I believe is a call, a call to bear witness to what I'm calling the underrepresented truths of the modern American church. Number one, that God is one. He's not one thing and the opposite of that thing. And so even his wrath is a function of his love. And number two, God is love. And his mercy is over all that he has made. That's Psalm 145. And so God wants to save. And number three, God is almighty. He wants to save and he can save. And so your will to sin, your will to sin is not stronger than God's will to save. And so number four, God does save. People may languish in Hades. They may be destroyed by the eternal fire, but salvation, salvation is the end of every story. Jesus is the end, and Jesus is the beginning, and God is a consuming fire. Number five, that only makes sense through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the revelation of God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth and in, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, I believe we're called to bear witness to the glory and the power of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so three years ago, we set out on a journey I cannot think of a period in my life in which I experienced as much supernatural leading. And, and I mean, I, I was reflecting on that this week. It's really weird. I have folders and files of visions, dreams, and words that people have sent me. Uh, some of them, many of them, from before uh, things really even... The, Poop hit the fan while things were rosy. I mean, one guy had this amazing, elaborate three-week vision. It must have been about seven years ago about a landslide burying our old building up on the mountain. Another friend had a series of dreams for three years, every, every night, the same night of the year, one in which this giant black ball landed on me and I just stood there. And for years I wondered, what was that black ball? And now I know, I'm blackballed. There were many other visions. <laughs> Uh, words at that time from all sorts of people, all sorts of places, even two different people in two different places that did not know each other in Australia. Many here had visions of blood flowing down the mountain and pooling in the city of Denver. My father, my dead father, my live fa dead live father, even appeared to my wife uh, in a service and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to drink the cup the Lord has for you. And then, unscripted by me, we met. I preached where I watched his trial and his excommunication. I mean, we even had words leading us to this building. In Isaiah 54, over and over, don't hold back, don't hold back, received it many times. And check this out. It's not just been weird people telling me this stuff. Because that's normally the way it's been in my life. But, but I mean, God uh, or angels or something over and over again has showed up even in services puffing on me and other people. I mean, just bizarre, really weird stuff. Last week after the Christmas Eve service, a friend walked up to me and said, Peter, he was kind of freaked out. He said, Peter, uh, during the service, I kept hearing this deep, low heartbeat, like every few seconds, kaboom, kaboom. I said, well, that's really weird. 
following Sunday, uh, someone else walked up to my wife and she said at the Christmas Eve service, I kept hearing this heartbeat and it wasn't me. God is with us. You see, we don't have time for all the other words, freaky little incidents, but suffice it to say, never in my life have I witnessed leading like this. I mean, I really think we're supposed to be exactly where we are. And yet, never in my life have I felt as clueless as to the game plan. (laughs) Or felt so close so often to drowning. I mean, if you don't say it, maybe you ought to at least think it. Peter, why are we here? (laughs) What's the game plan? And believe me, I can come up with game plans, and and I do, but if I'm honest, I must tell you, I'm asking the very same question. And that would really be scary, wouldn't it? If I was in charge. But I'm not. I'm not. I believe he led us to this spot, but trust me, sometimes I feel the waves lapping against my feet, and I don't know the game plan. Now, I'm just telling you my story. It involves some of you. I'm just telling you my story, but you have a story. And if you follow Jesus for any period of time, I bet that you have cried out to him somewhere along the way, what are you doing? (laughs) Are you just standing there? Are you just watching me drown? Hey, did you know that I was a lifeguard? I used to be a lifeguard. And in lifeguard training, they told us that a large person, a person with a lot of self, that is a strong person, is particularly difficult to save. For in their strength and their fear, they lash and flail about, and not only can they drown themselves, but the person that's trying to save them. So the best thing to do, the most loving thing to do, is to swim out to them and just remain at arm's length, out of reach, and watch them drown. A bit, a bit. Let them exhaust their own strength, their own resources, until entirely weak you can be their strength. Until they have no choice but to trust you. Then you can grab them, swim for them, then you can save them. That's how you save them. You let them drown. it's, It's the most loving thing to do. But to the person that's drowning, must not seem very loving. Well, you know, God is not a weak little lifeguard. And God can save you whether you're thrashing about in fear or not. Actually, I think he does it all the time. Do you know every heartbeat is a gift? Even though you don't believe it. I don't think anybody here really believes that. Every moment you are upheld by grace, even though your heart will not rest in that fact. God is continually, always saving you or you would automatically cease to exist. He is always saving. But you have to know that you're drowning in order to know that you're saved. 
The Lord is salvation. And yet to be truly saved is to know that you are saved, to rest in that salvation, and that's called faith. Heaven, heaven is resting in the deep knowledge of God's grace, continually, absolutely, implicitly. Heaven is complete faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our lifeguard. Heaven is faith in the glory and power of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the lamb standing upon the throne who has fought for you. As you sing his song, that's heaven. Exodus 14, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be still. The Lord said to Moses, now he's talking to Moses. Remember, Moses just said this. So you know Moses is struggling. Why do you cry to me, Moses? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your rods, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go on dry ground through the sea. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, the Egyptians, then the angel of God, the angel or messenger of Yahweh, if you study the Old Testament, this is really fascinating. This amazing character in the Old Testament. He's like fully man and fully God. You ever heard of such a thing? Anyway, the angel of God who went before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood uh, from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and the night passed without one coming near the other all night. Then, after that night, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did against the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is salvation. You know that little phrase, becomes a name in Hebrew. Yehoshua. Joshua. In Greek, Jesus. Or Yesu, in English, Jesus. Well, well, imagine, imagine that day. I mean, imagine how they laughed and they sang on the eastern bank of the Red Sea. But, you know, they could have laughed and sang just as loud on the eastern bank if they had had faith in Yahashua, the Lord is salvation. 
Not a plan, but a person. Well, anyway, after an experience like that, you would tend to think, great, lesson learned, done with that, on to other things, right? Everything will be smooth sailing from here on out, just like the guy on TV said. And was it? You know the story. Oh, no. Do you realize that none of those Israelites that crossed the Red Sea that day made it all the way to the Promised Land? None except for Yahashua. And maybe, maybe Caleb. We don't know if he was alive at the time. Yahashua and Caleb, the word means dog. That's kind of interesting. But anyway, they all died before they got there. Even, even Moses. You see, they actually did die in the wilderness. They failed to enter the promised rest. They drowned in their own unfaithfulness and fear. The real sea which needed parting was their own unbelief. They sank in that sea. The sea is chaos, unbelief, and fear. In Numbers 16, some of the Israelites, that Korah and some of the Israelites, some even sank into the deep chaos. They sank into the earth alive. Numbers 16, 32, the earth swallowed them. And check this out. That's the very same phrase used in Exodus 15 uh, regarding the Egyptians. The earth swallowed them. The sea, the deep, Tiom, Sheol is faithlessness and fear. But faithfulness is the promised land. But now if you're thinking, I mean, you've got to be thinking to yourself, well, okay, great, just great. Moses didn't have enough faith. The Israelites didn't have enough faith. Maybe Joshua had enough faith, but what makes you think I'm going to have enough faith? And hey, maybe I'm an Egyptian with a heart having been hardened by God. And maybe this isn't even for me. And even if it is for me, why should I trust God to bring me into the promised land? He said he'd bring them into the promised land. And did he? Five times already in Exodus. You go read this. 3, 17, 6, 8, 12, 25, 13, 5, 13, 11. God promises to bring Israel into the promised land. And all but Joshua die in the wilderness, sink into Sheol, often translated hell. And so preachers say, there's no hope for them. No hope. But does God keep his promises? Does the word of God return empty and void? Does the Lord part the sea or is our hope clean cut off? Listen to Ezekiel 37 verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. You see, their journey isn't over and you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my 
people and I will put my spirit, my spirit, that's the spirit of faithfulness. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. And check this out, Jesus, Yahashua, is the son of man. Angel of Yahweh, word of the Lord, promise of the Father. And on a Friday from a Roman cross, he descended into the deep, into the depths of the earth, and he led a host of captives free. He is the faithful one. And he gives to us his spirit. You see, the promised land is far more than real estate in the Middle East. The promised land is real estate in a new creation. And it's filled with, quote, the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's filled with faithfulness. It's filled with the spirit of Yahashua, the spirit of Jesus. The Lord is salvation. And on the day of the Lord, that salvation is revealed. And now check this out, Isaiah 19. It's in the Bible, okay? I didn't write this. Remember God said, uh, the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. Check out Isaiah 19, verse 21. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Verse 24, in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria. You remember who the Assyrians were? Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Wow. I mean, Yahweh really is salvation. And not like a little itty bitty bit of salvation. He keeps his promise. And Jesus is his promise. He even gives faith to the faithless in the depths of the sea. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Romans 3, verse 3 and 4, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, my Greek teacher told me to translate that, hell no, hell no. Let God be true, though every man be a liar. And so if you were sitting here this morning thinking, hey, Peter, this doesn't apply to me because I've been unfaithful, I've been untrue. Peter, the Israelites followed the Lord to the sea, but I followed me, I'm unfaithful. Well, we've all been unfaithful. In fact, your unfaithfulness is the sea. And when you surrender yourself to the Lord, you can be assured that he has led you to this point in order to face that sea because he works all things for good with those who love him and are called according uh, to his purpose, even your unfaithfulness. So surrender to the Lord right now and he has led you to this point, but now it's time to see his salvation. That he is faithful even when you are unfaithful. And he gives his faithfulness to us. There can be no greater savior. 
And check this out. I didn't write this. This is in the Bible, okay? 1 Timothy 4.10. The living God is the Savior of all people. Wow! Tried to find ways to explain that away. I have. He says, the, the living God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. What does that mean? Especially those who believe. Maybe ultimately, you see, everyone is saved, and yet heaven is believing that you are saved now. Heaven is faith in grace, completely, absolutely, and implicitly. Heaven is trust in your Father's heart, from the bosom of the Father. Heaven is faith in the glory and the power of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Heaven is seeing and believing, the Lord is my salvation, right here, right now. And so why the journey? <laughs> yeah, why the journey? Why the crisis at the sea? Well, it's at the sea that we see him and we learn to trust him. It's when we have no direction to look but up that, that, that we do look up. It's when we finally see we cannot save ourselves that we finally see him my Savior, our Savior. It's when we face our own faithlessness that he gives his faithfulness. It's in the drowning that we're saved. It's in the knowledge of our own weakness that we discover his strength. It's in our weakness that he is strong. It's in our failure that we learn to trust grace. And you see, the promised land is the kingdom of grace. And if you don't learn to trust grace, Absolutely, completely, and implicitly, you will not enjoy that kingdom. It'll scare the hell out of you. <laughs> you know, at the start of the journey, Israel was baptized in the sea. But they don't enter the promised land until they follow Yahashua, Jesus, across the Jordan. We cross the Jordan when Jesus is fully formed in us, when faith is completed in us, when we completely trust the Lord is salvation. And so throughout your journey, God in his mercy will lead you to the bank of the sea. He'll lead you to defeat in order that you might know his victory. He'll show you your faithlessness in order that he might fill you with his faithfulness. He'll lead you to despair in order to fill you with delight. He'll lead you to the end of yourself in order that you can see the genesis of him, the beginning of him. He'll lead you to death so that you can live. And you see, it's not murder. It's birth. It's not contempt. It's love. It's not bondage, but liberation, not sadistic, it's salvation. Salvation by grace through faith and this, this faith, not of yourselves. It's when you lose your life for Jesus' sake in the gospel. It's when you lose your life that you find it. Actually, it's been waiting for you. It's eternal. It's Jesus. And you see, he comes walking to you on the sea. Gospel of John, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. We've been preaching through that. 
He has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. And he does not see or taste death, quote, into the age. I think that means he doesn't sink into the sea. He's not trapped by the sea, the abyss, Tehom, Sheol, hell. When his body stops working, that person goes right on home, right on home to the promised land. Why? Because the promised land has come right on home to him. The kingdom of God is within him. Heaven is at hand. Well, after I graduated from high school, I got a job at the Green Oaks Community Pool, Littleton, Colorado. I only saved one person the entire summer, but I saved him quite a bit. <laughs> His name was Michael, or Mikey. And Michael was like five years old, and he did not have like an ounce of fat on his body. And routinely, Michael would just get this like wild look in his eye. <laughs> He'd just run off into the pool. Shallow end or deep end, it didn't matter. He'd drown in either. He didn't know how to swim and he wasn't tall enough to touch the bottom. Routinely, he'd just get this wild look and run off into the pool. And so routinely, I'd have to jump in and, and save him. And this was the amazing thing to me. I'd be swimming to him or walking to him in the shallow end. And I'd get a good look at Mikey's face, and his eyes were just like bright and locked on me, and always, 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 he would be laughing. Laughing. I mean, like he was in heaven, even as he was drowning in the sea. And I'd pull him out. I'd pull Mikey out. I'd set him on the side and I'd give him these little talks. I'd say, Michael, look at me. Listen to me. You stop drowning. You, 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 you know, if you could keep doing that, you could die, Michael. You could die. I remember him looking up at me with these big bright eyes and going, does that mean I couldn't go swimming anymore? I was like, yeah, Michael. You couldn't go. I mean, you die, Michael. You die. I'd try to get mad at Michael because he did the dumbest things. I tried to get mad at Michael, but I just couldn't because he'd look at me with those big bright eyes as if to say, but Peter, why should I be afraid? Every time I start drowning, you jump in, swim for me, and I have only to be still. You see, even as his little arms were thrashing about in the water, his heart was at rest in me. He would laugh while drowning because he knew I was the Savior. He would sing the song of salvation in the midst of the sea because of me. And Michael was my favorite at the Green Oaks Community Pool. He laughed while drowning. And you see, what I'm telling you is that laughter is faith. And faith is the lesson Faith is what the Lord our Savior longs to see. In all honesty, I, I think about Michael all the time. Michael means one like God, and in Scripture, Michael is an angel. You see, I saved Michael, and yet for years, I think God has been using Michael to save me. 
to laugh while drowning is faith. And when you're full of faith, you're done. <laughs> done with your journey and your home. So here's the deal. I don't know what will happen in 2011. You could win the lottery, you really could. Or you could go bankrupt. You could get married or you could get divorced. You could be miraculously healed or you could die a slow death due to cancer. But I know this, I do know this. I don't know that, what will happen, but I do know this, you can laugh. And I don't know exactly what will happen with the sanctuary. I think we're right where we're supposed to be. I think God is asking us to step out, but tell you what, I don't know the game plan. We don't know the game plan, but we know the player. We know what Israel did not know that day by the sea. We know Yahashua. God is salvation, Jesus. And he wants us to laugh. And then that laughter parts the sea. You see, that laughter is faith in the midst of the sea, and faith is the entire lesson. And so here's the deal. He's the deal. And on the night when the evil one thought that he had everyone, everyone pinned against the sea, the angel of Yahweh, the word of God, the promise of God, the Passover lamb, the revelation of God, Yahashua, the faithful one, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken, parted for you. Take indeed and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you. And you have only to be still. This is Yahashua. Follow him. Be filled with him. And then you, the elect. Did you know that's what you are? You are the elect. You the elect, you the called, you have been called to sing the song of salvation in the midst of the sea. So come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The light cups are juice, the dark cups are wine. And then worship. Sing the song of salvation in the midst of the sea. And one day, all creation will join you. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. So it's the start of 2011. I don't know if you feel like you're drowning or you're just like on top of the world, but I tell you what, one day you will drown. I mean, one day you'll stop breathing air in this world Watch it happen to my dad. He drowned in fluid in his lungs, and it's hard, it's, it's painful. 
But you know, when Susan saw him in that vision at church several years ago, she said, Peter, his eyes were just like bright and huge and, and alive and full of so much life and so much joy. You see, uh, my father didn't sink into the sea. <laughs> Jesus came walking to him on the water and he passed to home. He passed destruction. He passed destruction in Sheol and he went right on home because home had already come right home to him. And so believe the gospel and sing the song in the midst of the sea. In the vision, Susan said he leaned forward and he said, Peter, do not be afraid. Peter and Susan, do not be afraid. You see, I think he knew stuff that was about to happen. <laughs> and he was telling me what Michael would tell me with his eyes. Peter, laugh, even while you're drowning. For the Lord is salvation. He will fight for you. And you have only to be still. And so, Happy New Year. May you sing the song of salvation, whatever happens in 2011. Because the Lord is good and His mercy is over all that He has made. And He will not fail. In Jesus' name, amen.